following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans 8 this morning, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 25. Wonderful passage of Scripture, encouraging passage. So, but before we, we read the passage... There's no question that we live in a broken world, right? I, I, don't, I doubt anyone would disagree with that, but, but if you begin to doubt that or wonder if it really is broken, just turn on the nightly news, and, uh, and you'll find out pretty quickly it is. So, it seems like there's a weather catastrophe somewhere in the world every day, whether it's a flood or a hurricane or a tornado or extreme temperatures and, uh, and all that's going on. Of course, the political news isn't any better than the weather. And, um, and then uh, there's just the, the violence and the instability that afflicts so many of our communities. So I read this week that the CDC estimates that one in seven children in our country experienced child abuse and neglect in just the past year. I mean, think about that. One in seven kids experiences that on an annual basis. It's heartbreaking. And then there's just all sorts of just other human suffering that that is no one's fault at all. There's cancer. There's disease. There's death, most importantly. Pains and agonies. Just all sorts of other things. So what do we do with all the suffering and the misery of life in this world? I think it's worth pointing out that the secular man really has no answer to it. It's all meaningless. There's no purpose behind any of it. And it's frankly all hopeless because there is no resolution. Now, now of course, they can hold out hope that with education and with technology that we can relieve a lot of suffering. And and to some extent, that's true. People suffer less today than they did 100 or 150 years ago. But, but ultimately, they can't fix it in the ultimate sense. They can't fix depravity. They, they can't prevent death in the ultimate sense. And we can't stop the forces of nature. So mankind has no ultimate solution for it all. It's all meaningless. It's all hopeless. But Christians, on the other hand, we, we can face every challenge with hope Because our sovereign God has promised that He will fix everything that's broken. Our suffering will end, and we will enjoy a glorious new existence someday, and and all of our suffering today is moving towards that. And today's text describes this great hope and how it enables us to, to navigate the sorrows, the disappointments, the difficulties of life in this world. So Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. 
And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This is a wonderfully encouraging and hope-filled passage. And it begins with a potent assertion, which is the theme of the entire passage. So again, verse 18 says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so Paul tells us there that future glory outshines present suffering. Now, now before we go on, I do want to park for a moment on, on why Paul parks on this future glory and present suffering in the middle of Romans 8. That's important. Why this passage here? Well, remember that Romans 8 is all about God's promise. That He will certainly bring all of His children to glory. If you are saved, your salvation is secure, and you can know that you are going to heaven. So so this whole chapter is is a hopeful chapter that is looking ahead to heaven. But Paul understands that life in this world doesn't always reflect that hope. And in fact, he's mentioned some of that already in the chapter. So verse 3 says that Christ died in this world. Verse 10 says that the Christian's body is dead because of sin. Verse 11 says that we will all die at some point. And verse 17 is especially important. It says that Christians must suffer with Christ before we reach glory someday. So so the question that inspires these eight verses is how does my present suffering fit within God's plan to bring me to glory? how, How in the world, if I'm living in this messed up, perverted world, and I look at myself and how broken I am, how does that fit with with what God is ultimately doing? And so, how do we process our suffering? And why must we remain focused on future glory even as we suffer today? And again, verse 18 answers that we have to remember that my future glory outshines any present suffering. So let's think for a moment about present suffering. Again, I mean, Paul acknowledges here that life in this world is oftentimes very difficult. And it's good to remember that that Paul's not saying this as as a young gun who's never really had to suffer much other than the disappointment of burnt toast. No. I mean, this is Paul. Paul has suffered dearly for the sake of the ministry. He knows what it is to suffer. And he's not just talking here about Christian persecution and suffering directly tied to our faith because because verses 20 through 22 say that all creation suffers. Speaking not just of people, but even the the, the subhuman creation that God has made. So, So suffering abounds everywhere. And we've talked about this already a little bit. Our our world is a harsh place. We endure Natural disasters, earthquakes, violent storms. Sometimes the weather is miserably hot, and other times it's miserably cold. And our bodies are mortal. They are all aging, 
and moving towards death. And all that, all, the, all these things bring a tremendous amount of pain, disappointment, and grief. And the Bible never runs from that reality, right? The Bible doesn't paint this rosy picture that, that if you love Jesus, your life will be swell and wonderful and happy all the time. It doesn't promise health, wealth, and happiness to followers of Christ. No, the Bible is very honest. In fact, the Bible talks constantly about the hardships and pains and sorrows of life in this world. And it does so because the Bible has the tools to confront those things and answer them. And the most important tool we have as we face in the eye the sufferings of this world is the promise of future glory. So God assures us again that future glory outshines present suffering. And in fact, he says there in verse 18 that, that the present sufferings we endure are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not even in the same class. That they're not even comparable. And now I should note that when he talks about future glory here, Paul is not talking about the amenities of heaven. You know, when you, when you look up a hotel, you look up the amenities, and maybe you want to know the quality of the sheets and whether or not they give you breakfast and you know, how nice it is. And, and Paul's not concerned with those uh, aspects of heaven here. No, no, rather, Paul's focus is, as he says, the glory to be revealed in us. Meaning, the glory that we will enjoy when we are fully conformed to the image of Christ. That's the focus here. The glory that I will receive. I will become like Christ, and because I will be made like Christ, I will be able to live in God's presence for all of eternity. And that's going to be the best part of heaven. Not all the other stuff. Jesus will be the best amenity, if you can even call it that. Christ will be wonderful. And the point then of verse 18 is that that hope that I'm going to be glorified and I'm going to be with God forever gives me the tools to confront suffering, to keep hope in the face of it, and to persevere. So yes, life is oftentimes very painful. It's hard. But we know that someday the glory of our inheritance will overwhelm every memory of our suffering. And it will be worth it all. You know, for example, I, you, know, you all know that I love sports and, and, I, and I like to be a little nerdy about how I follow sports. And, and so it's fascinating to me to, to, to just learn, for example, what, what athletes go through to train to, to compete at a high level. And it's, it's amazing, you know, how, how, how they will have to discipline every part of their life and everything that they eat and how they sleep and, and all that they do. And then when they go to the gym, I mean, it's miserable. It's miserable. I mean, they strain and train as hard as possible. It's exhausting, it's painful, and it's intense. And they do it every day. But, but you know, I've also watched a lot of athletes who just won a, an Olympic gold medal or just won a national championship. You know, they're getting interviewed after they win this big title. And you know, I've never heard a single one of them get in front of the microphone and gripe about all, this, all the training that they did to get ready for this event. Right? I mean, now they, they might mention it. They might bring up how hard they worked to get to where they are. 
but, but they're never complaining. Because the joy of winning it all makes the suffering that they went through seem like a small thing. It is worth it, and they are glad that they went through all of it. You know, and similarly, when you reach heaven someday, you won't be eager to complain about how hard it was down here. I mean, the first time you see Jesus, you're not going to be like, well, Jesus, I hope you know all I went through to get here. And I hope you make it worth it. I hope this place is worth everything I went through. No. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to see Christ. You are going to worship Him. And you are going to be so thankful for everything that you... That, that it's, that, I mean, it's not going to be a big deal. You are going to be thankful for every step He took you through to bring you to glory. And, and God assures us here that, that the present sufferings cannot even be compared to future glory. And so remember that when life gets hard and when your sorrows seem overwhelming, that future glory will be worth every pain. And then in the remainder of the passage, Paul offers two witnesses to this fact, creation and and ourselves. And so first of all, creation anticipates redemption. Creation anticipates redemption. So, So let's read verses 19 through 22 again because it's been a few minutes, it says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth Together until now. Now, I have to note that when he talks about creation here, he is talking about subhuman creation. All right? So, so he can't be talking, and creation here does not include us, all right? Because, because we are distinguished from creation in, in his discussion here. And of course, it can't be unbelievers because unbelievers are not looking forward to redemption. So, so when he talks about creation, he's talking here about the animal world. He's talking about plant life, He's talking about just inanimate rocks and trees and um, moon, you know, planets and, and all those things. And, and Paul describes creation here. Now, now, he does describe it here as, as having human thoughts and emotions. And of course, Paul doesn't actually think that, that any of these things have human thoughts or emotions. No, no, what he's doing here is, like many authors and poets before and after him, he, he's creating a compelling image by picturing all of this creation as longing for glory. So so all creation longs for the redemption of God's people. And that's that's because it's not just us who suffer in this world. No, No, all of creation is subject to the curse and subject to corruption. Now we know the story. The story begins all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God made everything at the end of the creation week. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. It was all perfect. But of course, it didn't stay that way. You know, so, so, so initially, all of creation was happy. It was peaceful. It had a wonderful existence. But then Adam sinned. 
In Genesis 3, 17 and 18, God says to Adam, because you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And creation has never been the same. And verse 22 says, it became a slave to corruption. And so the animal world became violent as some became carnivores and others became parasites. And, and, and weeds began to compete with the farmer and began to compete with his crops. The weather changed and became much harsher and more violent. And everything in creation began to decay. And so the world is now a violent place. Not just in humanity, but creation in general. We just, just the other night we heard, a, heard something kill a rabbit in our backyard. And you heard the, you know, the, the shriek. You know? And so creation is, is violent all around us. And, and we have to remember that this is not how God originally made it to be. God created a good universe that was peaceful and, and beautiful. God did not make it this way. Sin has brought terrible corruption on all creation. And so verse 20 says that creation was subjected to futility. And Paul here, when he, the word he uses there for futility, it is probably drawing on, on the picture in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes uh, talks about uh, how creation was made vain or how it is frustrated. talks about vanity or frustration or futility. And so what Paul is saying is that creation has become vain or futile in the sense that it doesn't function the way God made it to function. It is broken. And it can't fulfill the design, do the things that God originally made it to do. So, maybe this spring you've been frustrated by the weeds in your yard. Seems like there's so many of them. They just keep coming back. And no matter how many you, you throw away or kill, there's just more to come. Well, God says you're not the only one that's frustrated. I mean, the, 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 the whole creation, the ground, the plants, everything else is frustrated by the curse. And so notice the conclusion in verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, the verbs that, that Paul uses there are verbs that would typically be used in the context of labor pangs, birth pangs. And if you've ever been in a labor and delivery room, you know that that's a graphic image. It's an intense place. And, and so labor is miserable. And, and Paul is saying that creation faces excruciating pain like a woman in labor as it endures the effects of the curse. But birth pangs are, are a, just a brilliant image for, for this context because birth pangs, while they are miserable, have a wonderful purpose. And they're filled with hope. Because, because you know, even as the woman is suffering and she's miserable, she's excited because her baby is coming and she's about to meet him or her. And similarly, the creation is suffering terribly under the curse. But this suffering is not meaningless. And it's not endless. Someday, suffering will give way to glory, and all creation is going to be transformed. 
It's going to be changed. And, and verse 19 says that this hope of change, this hope for rescue, is rooted in the revealing of the sons of God. As well, verse 18 says, the glory will be revealed in us. And verse 21 mentions the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, so, so this is really important. right? That, 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 that what, what Paul is talking about here, what, what he's looking forward to, is not just perfect environment, perfect atmosphere in heaven. No, no, the fundamental hope of this passage is God's promise that He is going to glorify the children of God. So, so right now, we're a long ways from glory. I can see that looking at you, and you can see it looking at me. And, and as well, our, our, just our, our hearts are, are so far from, from the holiness and the purity of God. But someday, we're going to see Christ face to face. And 1 John 3, 2 says that we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to become gods because we will never take on God's attributes of greatness. You you will never be omniscient. You will never be omnipotent or anything like that. But you will be righteous like Jesus is. Your body will be very good. In fact, it will be better than the body that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. And it's hard to imagine when you look at us now. But but we will reflect the glory of God in a way that nothing else in creation ever has or ever will, including the highest angels. God is going to change us. And it's going to be exciting. And Paul says, though, that it won't just be a big moment for us. It's going to be a huge moment for all of creation. And again, verse 19 says, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So, so he mentions there the anxious longing. Creation is just waiting for us to be glorified. And the waiting eagerly. I, I like how the, uh, the, the J.B. Phillips, a paraphrase of the New Testament, uh, says this. It, it paraphrases this verse as saying, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. So think of a kid at a parade on his tiptoes, waiting to see what he wants to see. And God says that creation can't wait to see the glory that we will receive when we are glorified. It's going to be an awesome sight. But of course, it's not just that they're curious to see what we're going to look like when we're glorified. No, no the point is, is that, that our glorification will, will bring about the, the change of all creation. So creation will be set free, Paul says, from its slavery to corruption. So so here's an important point. You know, sometimes we think that at the very end of time, God is going to annihilate His original creation and start over with a new one. But that's not actually what God says here is going to happen. It's not that God is going to destroy this one and start over. No, He says there that, that creation is going to be changed. That God is going to fix and perfect His original creation. And He's going to do so far as the curse is found. Every consequence of the curse will be reversed. And God will fix His original creation and in fact make it better than it ever was before. 
So we're going to live in a perfect world. You know, that means that, that some Christians are going to have to come up with new things to talk about. You know, so, some people, you know, all they want to ever talk about is, you know, complain about the weather and complain about how their back hurts or complain about the weeds in their yard or this or that or something else that frustrates them. They're going to have to come up with whole new things to talk about because there's nothing that you'll be able to complain about in heaven. And, and, and going back to Paul's main point, in all the sufferings of this present time will fade away. Revelation 21 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. It's going to be a great day when God restores this entire universe. I hope you're excited for that day. And then remember that Paul's purpose in bringing all this up is to demonstrate why future glory outshines present suffering. And so his first proof of verse 18 is, is the greatness, uh, his first proof of the greatness of our coming glory as Christians is that it's not just the hope of Christians. Our glorification is the hope of all creation. Because our glorification will be the key that will bring about God's change of everything that He has made. So, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So don't be discouraged. Don't be overwhelmed by the hardships of life because glory will be worth it all. And then the second witness to the fact that future glory outshines present suffering is that not just creation anticipates this redemption, but the saints also anticipate this redemption. Now, of course, that one just makes sense, right? That, that more than subhuman creation longs for deliverance, we ourselves, verse 23 says, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So, so we are waiting eagerly for our full adoption and our full redemption. Now, now that might surprise you because last week we talked about the doctrine of adoption and and you might wonder, well, well, haven't I already been fully adopted into God's family? I mean, how can you be partially adopted and partially not adopted? Well, well the simple answer is, is that you can't be partially adopted and we weren't partially adopted. Now, the moment you get saved, God fully adopts you into His family. You are His son or daughter completely because Jesus has fully paid the price for our sins. He has fully redeemed us. But while we are full members of God's family, God has not yet given us our full inheritance. We are His children, but we have not received the inheritance that we receive as His children. And again, that's obvious if you look at yourself and you look at me. We suffer in this world. And we are all a long ways from perfection, both physically and spiritually. And so we long for the day when we will receive our full inheritance. And Paul says that our longing only grows because, he says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now that image of first fruits is, is, not, a really, is not a hard one to grasp, in particular if you've ever done any gardening or any sort of farming. So, 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 so if you're going to plant a garden, you, you work hard to, to prepare the soil, and you plant your seeds or your little plants, and you water it, you weed it, 
And you watch it. You wait for it to grow. And then finally, you get your first you know, little strawberry or first tomato or first apple. And you're excited to, to eat that first evidence, the first fruit of, of your harvest. It tastes good. But what Paul here is particularly emphasizing is that the first fruits tell you that you did it right. You didn't fail and that more is coming to more is going to follow. So 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 what Paul's saying here is that the spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of our inheritance. He is the first blessing God has given us of our salvation. So so take time to appreciate the blessing of his ministry. And as you see Him working in your life, you should draw assurance from it. That God's gift of the Spirit means that He will give me more someday. He is, as Ephesians 1.14 says, the pledge of our inheritance. So every time you experience the Spirit's ministry, it's a small foretaste of the glory that you will enjoy someday. I mean, every godly passion that you feel. Every step of faith that you take. Every time that the Spirit illumines God's Word to you and you understand it a little more clearly. Every time He convicts you of sin. That every experience that you enjoy of His ministry is, is, a, is a first fruit of God. And so remember that. And draw assurance from it. And, and so every, every experience should assure you that even more is coming someday. So, so make sure you notice His ministry. You know, I talked last week, sometimes all we see is everything that's wrong in our lives. We need to recognize what the Spirit of God is doing in us to change us. And as we see Him at work, every time you see Him at work, every time you want to sin and He kind of says, ah, 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 think, man, someday I'm going to be in heaven and I'm going to be perfect. He's going to make me like Christ. And then remember, as well, that the Spirit's ministry is not the full course meal that leaves you satisfied. No, what Paul's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is, is the appetizer. That, 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 that the Spirit is, is the first fruits that, in a sense, gets, the, gets your stomach going and, and creates the hunger for, for the full course meal that's coming someday in glory. Now, Paul says, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Now, that's the same verb that he just used in verse 22, uh, specifically the, the, for the birth pangs of creation. So Paul says here, it's not just creation that suffers under the curse. We do too. And, and like a woman in labor, we must groan in hope for something better. That the full inheritance of our redemption and adoption. And, and it's, so, it's, it's so important, folks, that, that we see that. That we are groaning for heaven. That it is, it is big in our view. I was listening Friday morning to a pastor's podcast and the three guys were talking about a new book about hell, of all things. And they made a really interesting observation. One of the guys made the comment that pastors and churches and Christians today, that we don't use heaven and hell to motivate people the way past generations of Christians generally did. You know, that, that following the lead of our culture, even Christians, so often we are so consumed with this life, this world, 
And so we want to lead someone to Christ. We don't talk about heaven and hell. We talk about what God can do for you today. And, and, and as Christians, we are, we are so caught up at times with we want God to, to heal our relationships. We want God to make me feel good about myself. You know, we want God to, to help us reach our dreams. And, and my point is not that, that those things don't matter at all and that God doesn't care and that you shouldn't care either. But, but God says that one of the purposes of the indwelling Spirit is to create in you a holy dissatisfaction with life in this world. You know, God's goal is not that you are just comfortable, happy, totally content with life in this world, that the ministry of the Spirit should create in you a gnawing for the full reward that's coming someday. That, that, that He's not there to make you, you know, He's not the full course meal that leaves you, you know, full and not wanting anything else. He's the appetizer that makes you want the complete inheritance in heaven. So do you groan and do you wait eagerly for heavenly glory? How much is glory on your mind? How often do you pray, Father, Your kingdom come and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see your Christianity? Do you see your involvement in the church primarily as an avenue to a better life today? Or do you see it as preparation for eternity? You know, we should love coming together as a church. Absolutely. And, and we should love you know, hearing uh, from God, hearing from, from, from Christ through His Word and the preaching of the Scriptures. We should love to sing together. But do you ever think, man, this, this is great, but I can't wait to sing in the presence of Jesus with the entire bride of Christ. And the appetizer is great, but I can't wait for the main course. And someday you will be like Christ. You will share in His glory. Every desire will be pure. You, you will not need to resist a single impulse or passion of your thought of your heart or put aside a single thought. I mean, even your body will share in the glory of Jesus. So, so we absolutely should be content in the center of God's will where God has us today. But, and, and as well, we, we need to be fully engaged where we are today. But there should also be in us a groaning for the complete inheritance that God has promised. So, so Paul's made a great point. I mean, we have something wonderful ahead, and we should long for what is ahead. And yet he also understands that, that living by faith in hope of eternity is not easy for frail sinners like us. We're so easily consumed with the here and now, and so verse 24 drives home the reality that we are saved in hope. We are saved in hope. Look again at verse 24. It says, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? That's a, that's a really important verse. Because you know, you know, occasionally we'll, we'll get calls to the church. You know, someone, they want counseling and they want help from our church. And you know, their, their, their life is falling apart. They're miserable. 
and they're hoping that God can help them not be miserable anymore. And, and we don't want people to be miserable. We, we, want, we don't want people to, to have those sorts of problems. But, but you know, ultimately, we, we always have to remember, I mean, what, what Paul says here very bluntly is that the gospel is a gospel of hope. The, the, wonderful, the, the primary benefits of the gospel are not what you get today, as wonderful as they are. The primary benefits of the gospel are in eternity. You know, and so Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So, so without glory, I mean, our faith is a waste of time. So the gospel is not about achieving your best life today. It's not about what you get from God now. No, our gospel is a gospel of hope. We don't believe on Christ fundamentally for what we get today, but for what we get in heaven. You you don't obey the Scriptures. Read the Bible. Go to church. Or do ministry. Because fundamentally, for how it makes you feel today and how it makes your life today go better. You do those things to prepare for heaven. To move one step closer to glory. And that's that's so simple. But it is so otherworldly, and frankly, it is very difficult to remember. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I mean, not. You know, just, I'm not even primarily thinking of, of here, but, but you know, I listen to Christians all the time. You know, talk about their faith fundamentally for, for what it gives them today, and, and people share the gospel and, and, and their sales of, salesmanship of the gospel is all about what God can do for you today. You know, and, and so you know, Christians make decisions. Consumed with convenience, happiness, and fulfillment. And it's so easy to do. But, but folks, listen to God. I mean, God says, in hope, we have been saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. So keep your eyes on heaven. Understand the nature of the gospel. And then verse 25 challenges us to persevere in hope. To persevere in hope. Verse 25 says, but if... We hope for what we do not see. With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now, now Paul's Greek term here uh, pictures both patience and perseverance. And it's really a great conclusion to this passage. So, so for example, uh, when I was in college at at Northland up in the the north woods of Wisconsin, uh, they had a a five-mile loop that you could run uh, off campus. It was on the roads outside campus. And I, I loved, you know, during the like two weeks of the year where it was warm enough to, to run outside, uh, I loved to go running on the five-mile loop. It was a beautiful run. There were some beautiful fields along the way and, and forests, and sometimes you'd see a, a deer or, or something else. And, and so it was a beautiful run. I, I enjoyed it. You know, but the problem with a five-mile run, though, is that eventually you start to tucker out. You start to get tired. And, and after a while, your, your legs start to burn it's not as fun anymore. And you have two choices when that happens, right? You can quit, you know, walk back to, the rest of the way back to campus, or just, you know, hope someone comes and gets you and just sit down. You know, or you can put your head down and run to the end and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Press forward. And, and, and so, folks... We should long for heaven. 
We should long for the finish line. But we also have to live in the moment. And so you are on this earth because God has a purpose for you to fulfill. And that's really important because, you know, I mean, to think of that illustration, you know, younger saints tend to get distracted by all the scenery, right? You know, they're, they're looking at the trees, they're looking at the grass, they're looking at the animals, the flowers, and they lose sight of the finish line. But, but what can happen to older saints is that they oftentimes can start to give in to exhaustion. And they quit. Or they really slow down in the race. They just want it to stop. And so I want to ask you, are you walking to the finish line? Or are you pressing to the end? Put your head down. Put your head down and run hard. Because God has a purpose for you to fulfill. Be useful to the ministry. Keep growing in godliness. Press eagerly all the way to God's finish line in your life. And of course, I don't want to take for granted that that everyone here has a secure inheritance. You know, that that everyone is going to heaven and that that everyone in this room will be with Christ someday. Because Jesus warned, that more people, vastly more people, are on the path to destruction in hell than are, on, than are on the path to heaven. And so we've seen today that, that no amount of, of beauty and, and, and blessing in the present path, if it's a path to hell, is worth it. And so maybe you're, you, know, you, you know the gospel. You know you need to receive Christ as your Savior. But there are things that you do not want to give up or you're scared of demands that Christ will make if, if you follow Him. And I would just urge you to see that there is nothing, there is no excuse in your book not to receive Christ that is worth eternity in hell. It's just simply not there. So please do not leave without knowing that your sins are forgiven. That you are truly adopted, truly redeemed. Come to Christ and be saved, and and we'd love to talk with you today and and help you know the assurance that you are on your way to heaven with Christ. And then join us on the narrow way that will end in eternal life with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the hope and the encouragement and the conviction of this passage. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room knows that hope. They are certain of their relationship with you. And if not, that they would be born again today. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are saved, that, Lord, every day uh, we would strive to know you, strive to serve you, and that we would do so with a clear vision of our eternal home. And uh, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and faith to believe the promise of heaven And God, I pray that we would live here with the the right mindset, fully engaged, fully serving, but also groaning for the day that we see our Savior. And so use that strength and that hope to encourage us this week, uh, to cause us to press forward and to do the things you've called us to do. And uh, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.